0: This is Open Work, a look inside the watch industry, a podcast from Collective Horology. I'm Gabe Riley, co-founder of Collective.
1: And I'm Asher Rapkin, co-founder of Collective.
0: Collective Horology is an independent retailer based in Southern California. We carry a wide range of independent watch brands, including Speak Marin, Arconaut, James Lamb, and more. To learn more about us and check out our available inventory, visit collectivehorology.com. And today on the podcast, we're taking a look at something both intangible and very consequential. And that's the power of brands. What they are, why they matter, should they matter, and how they impact the watch industry and watch collectors. And you know, Asher, on the last podcast we recorded with Mike Margolis, we talked about how watches are priced. And we talked a lot about the inputs that go into pricing a watch and Honestly, it was really eye-opening. There was a lot of things there that that I learned, and it was somewhat satisfying to learn, like, oh, gee, the reason a rubber strap, for instance, costs as much as it does is because the mold to make a rubber strap can be $50,000, right? Mm -hmm. So it it makes sense. There was one thing, though, as I've kind of processed what we talked about with Mike that just sort of hung out there as kind of, like, not very (laughs) satisfying or, or, or felt like it it required further explanation. And, and that was this notion of, of, of brands and, and how brands go into pricing watches. And, you know, the thing Mike said was brand, which is a very intangible thing, is a really important factor or input into pricing. And if a brand can, quote, get as much money as they think they can get for a watch, they really will on, on the back of the, you know, quote, the power of their brand, and so I, I feel like that's something that deserves more interrogation because clearly that means brands matter and they're powerful. And by the way, this isn't just about pricing. We're going to talk about brands today and what they impact, including pricing, but a lot of other stuff. But I don't know; it just sort of it didn't quite sit well with me, and and felt like something that we needed to take a closer look at.
1: It didn't sit. Why didn't that sit well with you?
0: Well, you know, I think in your your response to it. You know, you were playing the role of the cynic and the pragmatist, as you, as you often do. and At the same time. Yeah, at the same time. No, but I think your response to it was, well, man, that kind of stinks. In other words, that, you know, a company is going to get away with or think they can get away with charging as much as they can purely based on the power of something intangible and not necessarily like the cost that it actually takes to to make something and the workmanship in it and and all that kind of stuff
1: well I, all right so i think the first way to approach that is probably one of the biggest fallacies that people you know walk into when they're building a new product or, or make rather when they're making a new product in the first place whether it's a watch or anything else which is this concept that if you make an incredible product then people are just going to buy it on its merits right it's this concept of if you build it they will come and I think anyone who spent any time in in marketing as a field or just as a consumer can attest to the fact that just because a product is excellent doesn't necessarily mean that that excellence will translate into financial success. Brand in many ways is the byproduct of not just incredible product and not always incredible product, but certainly a compelling product, but also a, a success in the way that those things are communicated and then creates an intangible effect that levels that up, right? Like what's the difference between an Oreo cookie and essentially the same cookie that you buy at, you know, a discount, you know, like Smart and Final. It's the same cookie. It's just one bears a specific brand, one bears a different one, and we're intrinsically drawn towards the thing that we as, I think, humans share with others, right? Everybody knows what Oreo is. Nobody really knows what Forio is, Like, we only want to eat the Oreo. And I think that that's true with watches. You know, people intrinsically are drawn to the thing that they've heard of. You know, oh, my friend my friend said that Patek Philippe is an incredible brand. It must be really good. I see other people wearing it. I've heard about it. It's very expensive. You know, all of these things kind of lead us as humans to believe that there's an intrinsic value, which is in many ways what brand defines. Um, I don't know that that's a necessarily like a inherently good or bad thing, but it definitely carries weight.
0: Yeah, it's funny when when you mentioned the example of Oreo, for instance, I used to work in in advertising and my, my job quite literally was brand strategist. So one of the things I would do, I worked at an ad agency, I would work with companies on everything from building, creating and building a brand from scratch or, you know, creating advertising campaigns to Create or change perceptions about brands and, and things like that. That was really my job, and a big part of my job was to understand what brands are, how people think about them, the value they have to a company, the value they have to a consumer, all that sort of stuff. And you know, I spent years just bathing <laughs> and waiting in the, in this stuff, and it wasn't really till the in, until the end of my career in advertising that someone defined a brand for a me. For me, that was really kind of thought-provoking and eye-opening. And at the time, my my um, boss said to me, you know, all a brand is is the premium a company can charge on its product. So in other words, mm-hmm. what actually is the, you know, if you try to get really tangible about it, what is the difference between an Oreo And the store bought brand or the store brand, all other things being equal, really when it comes down to it, and there's a lot of things we could debate, but really when it comes down to it, the brand is the price premium that Oreo can convey. Now I I feel like that one really simplifies it into an an interesting proposition. It's very thought provoking. Two, it also maybe oversimplifies things, but I do think that that's like a definition worth considering. And I don't know. And, and obviously, there's part of me that feels like, oh, a brand just being something that commands more money. Obviously, it feels a bit maybe cynical to me. But I, yeah, but that's th- not that's not what premium
1: in, like necessarily means.
0: Sure, uh, okay. But I I do think even if we accept that definition, I do think there's actually value for the customer in that for the person buying in in our case a, a watch. You know, one one thing that I think is really interesting about and let's take. Rolex as an example, this is an easy one. This is a a company that manages its brands, particularly the Rolex brand, manages it very carefully, very diligently, has taken a very long-term approach to it, and is methodical in what they do. The fact that, in part, what makes a Rolex more expensive then other watches that might be comparable to it on specification is its brand does have value to the consumer. because the, And again, this is boiling it down in a very cynical way around price. Mm-hmm. It means that once you've bought the watch and you've walked away from the Rolex dealership with it, it is, quote, worth more money or retained more of its value than the average watch.
1: Uh, maybe another way to, to think about that is to adjust that definition slightly. And say that a brand is the premium that can be charged or lost, in a sense, based on the trust and investment made over time. I'll give you two examples of that, where brand cuts both ways, right? The Rolex example is, is on the money. They've invested very well, very thoughtfully, and very diligently and methodically over time and that investment has paid off where rolex is separate from even just the world of watches i think one of the most valuable brands in the world period up there with coca cola you know apple the rest but then there are other brands who have lost their premium over time you know brands that people used to view with a much as having much more value and due to missteps you know have fallen in value or fallen in what they can rationally Command as a price, so brand is a dynamic thing too. I think sometimes we think about this as you know, oh, when, once a brand has reached a certain level, it will always be there. Well, that's certainly not the case, you know. And and we can look at we can look at some brands like JLC, for example, which was at one point considered the watchmaker's watchmaker, and now is is sort of just you know. <sighs> You know, half melted butter on weak toast. It just just is what it is. It's it's a shadow of itself trying to trade on brand, and that has directly impacted what people are rationally willing to pay for that, because that premium has gone down. Brand, I think, also has a second component to it, which which goes into your I think your 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 very succinct definition really well, which is brand is also confidence, right? It's consumer confidence. Like if I think I'm going to, if I'm buying a, you know, X, Y, or Z, or I'm buying a Rolex, buying an Omega, you know, I'm buying these not just because of the heritage, quote unquote, in the brand, but I'm buying it because that brand has written into it a level of security that makes me feel if something goes wrong, they're going to be there to fix it. If I want to sell it in the future, there will be value in it. You know, if I want to give it to my children, it will still mean something. And that that helps improve the cost and the value. Where you could make an easy argument that there are you know finer watches out there that can't command that premium because that brand has not over time earned that level of respect and heritage. So when when we go back to like what Mike was saying about like if Paddock could charge five hundred thousand dollars for you know whatever they're currently charging three hundred k for, they would. That's equally tied to the fact that the brand itself has earned the ability to do that. Now, none of this, by the way, suggests that these things are actually worth those prices. Uh, in you know, in terms of intrinsic value, but I think it's part of the reason why nobody bats an eye at a six-figure paddock, but you know, would laugh another brand out of the room if they did a two X price increase from five k to ten k.
0: Yeah, and I, I I like the idea of you know, this notion of, of trust, or I I guess I would think about it as like reputation. I I think, you know, we've talked a lot about what a brand means in, in terms of, of price. And I think that's a huge part of the discourse on watch around watches these days for, for right or or wrong. I think it's much more interesting to think about it in terms of the brand is the reputation of, of the company. Mm -hmm. And, you know, to some extent you're, you're right. If you buy you know, a, a Patek Philippe or a, a Rolex or you know, Omega is another great example, you know, brands that have good reputations, you you know, they're going to be around. You're, you're in a sense paying for a sort of insurance, right? You have some sort of sense that, the watch will be made and made well. You have some sort of sense that it's a reputable company, that it's been around, it will continue to be around, you can get it serviced and, and thing things like that. So I, I, I do think like it's it it's both intangible, but yet has material value. People buy insurance for all sorts of things and buy insurance in all sorts of different ways, right? You know, if if you were buying a ticket on Spirit Airlines, uh,
1: What if I bought a ticket on Spirit Airlines? If you're buying a ticket on
0: Spirit (laughs) Airlines, and for those who don't know what Spirit Airlines is, if you're not in the United States, Spirit Airlines is a a low-cost carrier that's had a lot of financial difficulty over the years and is constantly target. I think they actually are getting absorbed or have been absorbed by JetBlue. It was Um, rejected. Oh, really? Okay. Well, then if you're today buying a a ticket on (laughs) Spirit Airlines, in addition to your cheap ticket you may actually buy insurance because heaven forbid the airline goes out of business. And there have been plenty of examples of airlines, for instance, in Europe that have gone out of business even in recent years. And what, what happens to your, your plane ticket versus, you know, if you're buying a plane ticket on, say, a mainline carrier like Delta or United, you can have some confidence that the airline's going to be around and you don't need to pay for that insurance. Mm-hmm. And, the, and the premium in your ticket reflects the competency and the reputation of the airline.
1: I'm listening to you say this and I'm imagining someone thinking, and and I I know we've gone through this ourselves with collective of like, okay, you know, that's great. Like, cool that like Rolex and Paddock have an amazing brand and can build it. I'm a watchmaker in this hypothetical. I want to start my own brand or I want to start my own store or I want to start my own whatever. You know, I'm starting from zero. How am I ever going to become a Paddock or a Rolex or a Coca Cola or an Apple or whatever? Because it can feel like an insurmountable. You know, an insurmountable thing to try and to to build a brand fundamentally, and the fir- and and in thinking about that, the first thing that popped into my head was, you know, as a path to this was was Max Booster and MBNF. You know, if you think about one of the, there's many things about Max that are impressive, but one of the things that I find most remarkable is that he thought about, and and who knows if this was intentional, but he clearly thought about what the. Visual and verbal articulation of his brand was going to be at the same time as he thought about the watches he wanted to make. And as a result, those things marched in parallel. So when he was starting from zero, so to speak, with MBNF, he was thinking about how he wanted to build a brand that almost felt like it was something that had been there already for so many years. You know, I, when I first encountered MBNF, it was, like ten years into their existence, and it felt, it looked, it behaved visually. You know what? In, in every way that I encountered it at, at at a store or in its merchandising displays or online in its premiums, whatever, as a brand that was well established. And this is a really interesting lesson, I think, uh, when we think about new brands that are emerging, new stores that are opening, whatever. A lot of these. A lot of these brands put all of their effort, or a lot of these manufacturers, I should say, put all of their effort into the product, which makes sense, right? Like if you're a watchmaker, it, it, you probably started your own brand out of a passion for watchmaking, not necessarily like a love of brand development and you know, building a business. But the thing is, those two things are so intrinsically combined and aligned. Like think about when you walk into a multi-brand boutique. And you look around at the individualized areas, you know, that are that are built out for a brand. Like you walk into the Rolex area, you've walked essentially into, in most places these days, a fully built-out Rolex boutique or a Patek salon or what have you. And when you walk into, even before the mad galleries started to populate the world, when you walked into a retailer that sold MBNF, he did that too, even early on. You know, the money and the thought and the investment was there and creating that feeling of a, of a world unto itself and i do think that those kinds of articulations and investment in like what it, what a brand makes you feel really does impact the long-term value of trust and belief because it makes you feel as a consumer like this is going to be here like there's thought in it that it's meaningful and and even though we all i think as collectors talk to each other about the dream of buying from like the you know the watchmaker behind the bench there's very few people like Philippe Dufour who can build an entire business completely without brand you know
0: well the, okay that that's interesting because one of the things you and I have encountered i mean we we carry independent brands right and we and we say independent brands but actually a number of the the companies the manufacturers who we carry go out of their way to tell us and to tell customers I'm not a brand. You know, there, there, there is, I think, in the independent watch world, and particularly with small manufacturers, one-person watchmakers, th- things like that, there is this sense of eschewing. Or is it eschewing? Eschewing. Eschewing? eschewing. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Whatever. Eschewing. There is this yeah. sense of eschewing a brand and yeah. not being a brand and actually making an intentional decision and saying, All of those things you're just describing, like Max, part of what makes MBNF special is that Max is a left brain, right brain person. He's not a watchmaker. He's really a business person who understands watches and is deeply passionate about watches. I mean, he understands watches on a a level I'm sure that many watchmakers don't. This is not to poo-poo Max. but. He's a he's a business person. And so for him, starting his own company, it was like, of course, the brand was important in many ways, just like the watches themselves were. But, but there are brands we carry, sorry, watchmakers we carry, who go out of their way to sort of reject the whole idea of a brand. They're not interested in it. And they're not looking for people who, who want to buy from a brand. They're looking for people who want to buy from a watchmaker. And so... I don't know. Where do you think that fits in? Does that well, I, limit the potential scale of a business? If, if, you, if you're a one-person watchmaker or a five-person watchmaking company, do you really need a brand? Do you only really need a brand if you're trying to scale to the level of an MB&F or, or beyond? Like, Does it really matter? Is it a necessity?
1: Well, I think it cuts both ways, right? Like, Think, think of it like this. Back in my former world, in my former career, you know, I, I used to uh, work with Procter & Gamble. And I realized upon my first visit to p and g headquarters that p and g you know it's really two two kinds of company right It's a chemical engineering company and it's a branding company because really like they're making these giant vats of industrial goo, you know it's just soap, it's a commodity there's no there's nothing special about it, you know, but what really sells it is the old spice guy and the bill and the brand around it now the the, the problem with that is that this creates a dynamic where people, where I think brand cuts in two, different, in two different directions. There's a way that we've been talking about it, which is it's an earned thing over decades that creates trust and heritage and all of this, you know, uh, or it's, a, it's an articulation that's so closely aligned to the artistic vision of a product that, that it really helps amplify that and then therefore give it more gravitas and value. But then there's the other side of brand too where where every where, where it almost feels like a stuffed shirt. And I think that's where people yeah. right? That's where people like pull back where it's like, why am I paying, you know, a hundred dollars for a Supreme t-shirt? The t-shirt's garbage, you know, but I'm what I'm paying for is the brand. And when you think about Supreme, like Supreme is the perfect example of this, you know, for those who who weren't skater kids in the 90s, <laughs> not that I was, but if you weren't a skater kid in the 90s, you probably don't know what Supreme is. But if you, you know, they are essentially a company that made their entire livelihood out of s- slapping their logo on whatever they could find and reselling it at a higher price point. And I think there is an aversion that some people carry to brand because they look at that and they say, that's so cynical. Like, that's just... A money grab, like brand, is pointless. There, you know, like because it doesn't actually stand for anything other than the, you know, the, the capitalistic pretense of it. And I do think that you know you could look at that as you know, if you want to be a business, if you want to look at it from like an MBA standpoint, you could say, "Wow, what an incredible success in building a business." You know, high margin, low cost, driven entirely based on something you willed out of out of existence. But I could also understand as a manufacturer or an artist saying that's just a lie. There's no there there. And, you know, calling myself a brand almost insults what I'm doing because it takes away from the quality of the work.
0: Yeah. You you know, when you you brought up the idea of like the stuffed shirt brand and like certainly I think part of what we've implied here that like there's almost a recipe for being a watch brand, right? Like People have to trust you. You have to have heritage. They have to understand that you you know you stand by quality and you have certain uh, skills and capabilities as a watchmaker, blah, 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 blah. And there are some watch brands that trade on that and trade on that successfully. I think there are some examples of brands who have taken, tried to rinse and repeat that and said, oh, if something works for Patek Philippe, it should work for me. One example of a brand who I think makes incredible watches but really should rethink their brand would be Frédéric Constant. Mm. And when I look at Frédéric Constant, let's just say on a product level, the watches themselves, I think there's some really awesome watches there and some very compelling watches there. So let's put the watches to the side for the second. And let's just, we we can agree or not agree on this, but I'm going to say, I think the watches are really good. And, and there's a oh, lot yeah, of really the, interesting the, the Peter stuff. The Speak
1: there. QP is a watch that I personally want.
0: Great example. So let's put the, the, the product to the side for, for a second. The brand, however, feels very try hard for me. It feels like they are, and I just mentioned Paddock, it feels like they in many ways borrow the look and feel, the tone and manner of. A brand like Patek Philippe and try to project it at a at a much on a much different kind of category and different kind of watch and different value proposition. Mm-hmm. The brand just feels unnecessarily stuffy and like it's trying to be like a baby Patek. When part of what's going on that's so interesting with with Frederic Constant are the watches themselves, and they're very interesting and they have a very different value proposition as a product from a Patek. And I'm just, I'm almost like, if you could get out of your own way there and sort of be yourself and not try to be someone else, that could be really interesting. One example, I think of a brand that hasn't taken kind of, you know, watch the watch brand for dummies playbook and has done some very interesting stuff is Moser. Mm-hmm. So this is a this is a high end indie brand haute horology brand incredible watchmaking capabilities that doesn't take themselves seriously and well, now, they t- they take their watchmaking seriously they do take their watchmaking seriously but their brand strategy has been very distinct which is to say they're very iconoclastic yeah and they're not afraid afraid of having a little bit fun a little bit of fun and I think that's been differentiating to that for them and you know I think. That's a risk, right? And there are people who would say, "I'm not going to do what Moser does in terms of having some fun with my marketing and being irreverent because people won't take me seriously." So I give them tremendous, you know, tremendous props for being willing to take a risk like that and being willing to behave as a different kind of
1: brand. Okay, so one one really important thing that you're pointing out here, and this is true about Moser, and in the inverse is true currently about Frederic Constant, which is Moser at least from the outside in made a very clear strategic decision with their brand which was a, a smart decision as we can clearly see from their success to pivot because if you think about Moser a decade ago Moser a decade ago was still making watches that were very much of the like you know eastern european classical you know style that that original Mosers were in i think they were was it St. Petersburg i think is when is where the original factory anyway I, I digress. I, the, I
0: think the brand mo- moved around but I do think the brand was founded in Neufhausen by Heinrich Moser. But whatever.
1: I stand corrected. The, the, point, the, the point I'm making, the yeah.
0: wa- the <laughs> watches were were and and the brand and all that was very classical and you know, central yeah. central casting. Yeah, I mean
1: they were beautiful but they didn't they didn't have the hook that was necessary to grow and one very clear decision that was made and i don't know if this was made you know pre or or because of edward or 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 what have you but one decision that was clearly made is that the watches decided to step into it in an avant-garde direction and the brand came up and met it right so that the marketing that the brand was doing was was pivoting away from what it stood for before and evolving into something so that when you heard Moser now you start thinking of things like concept dials or incredibly deep fumé, or whatever you know design element uh, you you find to be definitive of the brand, and then ultimately advanced it. Frederic Constant is in is is in a is in that same transitional period now, in some ways, where the brand hasn't evolved yet to meet the new voice of the product. Frederic Constant ten years ago it w- was essentially that. It was you know it, it it felt a little bit like like buying a Kobe instead of a Sony. You know, it's like it was largely the same, but it's not really the same. And the watches were unremarkable, frankly. But over the last ten years, as they invested more and more in their in, in their actual watchmaking, and started going into really interesting in, into interesting escapements, into affordable perpetual calendars, into all sorts of things that have now made that brand worthy of people's attention, the the, the product ha- is no longer no longer fits into the container of that yeah. brand. Yeah. Right. So the question then there becomes if you know. We, when we think about something like Patek Philippe, you know, or we look at uh, someone amazing like Max Booser, it's like those brands had a vision from day one and they stuck to it and they grew it and they developed it and over decades or centuries they became who they are. Other brands have to pivot and grow and change, and how they evolve their brand is often intrinsic to the value of those watches and who they're going to attract. You know, um, I think to your point, part of the problem with Frederic Constant is that the name and the brand doesn't match the product, and if you changed that. In one way or another, you may see significant success, hypothetically, because somebody would be able to transmit or understand, you know, from the brand and how it communicates what the product is all about and therefore lead to what we were referring to earlier as like the brand premium.
0: So here's a question, taking a look at at brands who have evolved, uh, sort of stepped up and have incredible watchmaking and potential. Let's discuss Grand Seiko here for for a second. And sure. this is a really this is a really interesting one and part of me has to like separate my heart which loves Seiko and loves Grand Seiko from maybe a more kind of taking a more outsider perspective on this. Clearly in the last few years the folks who manage Seiko the company have decided they really want to separate and elevate Grand Seiko from Seiko itself. So Seiko the Seiko brand has come off the dial. It's just Grand Seiko. Now the company grants or the brand Grand Seiko actually operates almost as a separate company within, within the overall Seiko organization. And they've really made a push up market and to define who they are. And they've clearly been very successful. I wonder though, fundamentally is the success of Grand Seiko to some extent limited by the name Seiko? I don't know.
1: I mean, I that, <laughs> that's kind of the the million dollar question about that brand in general. I think the answer is probably yes, because even though the brand has seen absolutely exponential growth and success since the, I, I wonder how much of that is because of the investment in the brand and the marketing of the brand versus the power of the Grand Seiko name. And that's a that's a really interesting that's a really interesting question. On the one hand, you could say you can't really separate the two you know, and if you can't see the value of Grand Seiko because you're blinded by the name Seiko and Seiko you know translates to you know affordable sub five hundred dollar watch to you, you know it might be difficult to see past that, but another way to look at that is that that might be exactly the point you know part part of what Part of what made Grand Seiko so powerful for collectors before it found its footing here in the United States was because it felt very inside baseball. And there was a feeling where it was like, I'm not wearing a, a Seiko. No, this is not a Seiko. This is a Grand Seiko. This is a whole other thing made by a whole other you know, factory in a whole other part of the country with a whole other level of artisanship. And I know about this. And this is, this is my wink wink, you know? And I wonder if that if if to the to the mass market, Grand Seiko may always carry the baggage of its its you know holding company. And I say baggage you know, sadly, because I love Seiko,
0: but oh, it's, I don't know that it's baggage. I mean, maybe it's a, it's a headwind for Grand Seiko. I don't think it's a baggage. Look, it's, it's a good problem to have. Sure. Almost everyone in the world knows Seiko and knows that it's a watch brand. Right. Well,
1: and, and I think, and I think that actually is, is wherein maybe the power of this lies where you could say, sure, this might be, you know, a headwind I have to overcome, or you could say, I'm going to take full advantage of this, you know, and it's this idea of like, Oh yes, it's Grand Seiko. If you, if you can't see past that, That's okay. I understand. There are other brands over here. Come, come on over. Let's take a look at you know these more established brands. This isn't for you, and that may also add to like the the mystique of that brand. And but I I also don't want to discount. There is another reason that Grand Seiko has found its footing. I mean, the watches were great to begin with. Well before the dial swap, you know, the heritage was there. Well before the dial swap, the real thing that changed for Grand Seiko. Is the just like steady flow of cash infusion from Japan into the markets that they wanted to grow? I mean, they're spending a lot of money in the United States. A lot of money. Look at the boutiques they built. Look at the build outs they have in a lot of their ADs. Like they are seriously spending. And I'm not saying that there's a direct correlation between how much you spend and success. But if you have the ingredients in the product and you do have a clear visual articulation of the brand, which Grand Seiko does, you can definitely add a, you can, you can throw a match into that kerosene if you pump tens of millions, if not more into it. And I think they're doing
0: that. I think, yeah, no, they they certainly are. And I, I think my question is, can the brand really scale? Because they have certain, the, the. What you're describing, what do you mean by really well, here, scale? Here's what I get Here's what I mean. What you're describing is true. Everything you just said is true clearly, or in my mind, when I look at the way they're behaving and what they're the way they're operating now, they're trying to break into sort of an you know the the most sort of selective group of watch brands in the sub ten thousand dollar price point, like right? they're trying to get to Being in the same consideration set or existing in the mind of the mass consumer, I think Mm -hmm. they're trying to exist in the mind of the consumer in the same consideration set as Rolex or Breitling or Omega or IWC. Like they're trying to live in that tier of brand. Mm -hmm. And on a business level, they certainly weren't there. They didn't have the, they just didn't have the level of production. There are obviously issues around the brand, which we've just described. Can they fundamentally get there with the name Seiko as part of the brand? I just don't know. I think there's a point to which they can continue to grow, and they've clearly done exceptionally well with watch enthusiasts, but with the name Seiko on the dial, can they compete against someone who walks into a Bucherer, you know, looking at a Breitling and a Rolex? I just, I don't know.
1: I don't think today, but I do think twenty, thirty, forty years from now, potentially, you know, brands fall in and out of favor, grow and evolve over time, as we've described. You know, very few, very few brands have such you know limited oscillation, <laughs> if you will, as as Rolex and oh, as Rolex and, and Patek do. But you know, because if you think about, it, like, there's really never been a time that I can think of where paddock didn't carry some degree of value in the last hundred years.
0: Yeah, I think that this notion is an interesting one, which is obviously there are a few ex- exceptions of brands who really endure over time, but there are also brands of the moment. And sometimes it seems like the brands of the moment will always be successful. You sure. know, oftentimes we predict the future from where we sit today. Yeah. Right? So,
1: so to that end, like you're, you're right the like Seiko presents a headwind to Grand Seiko today, today, but that but that presumes that the Seiko brand will have no oscillation in the next, you know, 30 to 40 years. And that that, or here's another way to look at it, or Grand Seiko may end up elevating Seiko as a brand.
0: Or it may go away. You, you know, who knows? Sure. Like, you know, two examples here would be just purely on a brand level, let's put product aside for a second. Panerai. This was a brand that 10, 15 years ago seemed in Invincible mm-hmm. and was certainly in the consideration set. I just mentioned when I talked about Grand Seiko and the consideration set they're trying to crack into. I didn't mention Panerai ten years ago. I w- I would have, and they seemed invincible. Another really interesting example, conversely, would be Audemars Piguet. Today, Audemars Piguet seems invincible as as a brand. You know, they're they're often in the consideration set in the discussion with Rolex and Patek Philippe. I remember I I, I listened to. Ben Kleinmer's uh, talking watches with with the outgoing CEO, and he mentioned that when he started with with the company in the nineties, the the brand itself was the watches were were fine, but the brand was really in in the doghouse. And so it's it's interesting to me. Yes, things can come and go, and they well, change over the, time. The, the, it's interesting that you
1: use both Panerai and AP as examples of brands that are you know bouncing up and down in terms of their popularity. And part of the I think what what's consistent. Between a brand like Panerai and AP is the meteoric rise, and then and then significant fall. Like if you look at a, if you look at more successful brands, they're they're much more methodical, right? Like Panerai exploded onto the scene, you know, in the late '90s, early 2000s, you know, coasting off of Sylvester Stallone and a, a pretty compelling, if shall we say, whitewashed story. <laughs> but you know whatever it was interesting and it exploded into the the phenomenon that it was and then the brand kind of just like climbed the escalator to nowhere and then just fell off because they never like the product and the brand never really consistently evolved in the same way and then eventually it just kind of went or, poof or tastes but, change and trends evolve sure but you could also argue that the job of a brand is to is to know what that is and to follow it oh, as well I,
0: I agree i would say like the counter argument to that would be it seems like Panerai was a very taste driven brand. Was there really a brand there or were they riding away? Of course there's a brand there, but was there really, was the strength of, were the strength of the sales and the company or the unit of, of driven by brand or were they driven by a product hit and the being in the right place at the right time? It's a good
1: rhetorical question. And I think you could apply the same, the same question to AP, which has invested and and I'll, I'll preface by saying, you know, clearly, there there are legitimate and incredible watchmakers at AP. Like if you look at their if you look at their grand comps, like that some of that stuff is just next level, specifically within the eleven fifty nine line. Um, although if you want to talk about bad branding, good God, we can talk about that one. But let's put that aside for a moment with with AP, they invested certainly in product. There's no doubt about that, but they clearly in like did a mega infusion in brand. So aggressively over the last 10 years that every, you know, every boutique got a complete makeover, the build out of the AP houses, the significant cost of some of their partnerships, you know, the licensing costs involved in in their partnership with Marvel, like it or not. All of these things, you know, really are about brand development. And what's interesting there is they've, they've, Benny Hamas basically rolled the dice and the dice and, and like the bet that he's making we'll see if it pays off is by making myself ultra relevant in pop culture i will therefore grow the brand and the watchmaking is there sure but the watchmaking you know it's not it's not as important unless you get to the grand comp level as the cultural significance of the product which is a very risky bet in some ways because if it pays off then you win right then you are extraordinarily culturally relevant you know you you become what somebody pictures when you close their eyes and think watch if you lose you were relevant only for a specific product cycle or a particular you know time and and date when when you know people cared about the black panther and after that it's like it, it almost looks ridiculous So it's a very high stakes bet that's brand driven that they're making. And this feeling that like, I don't just want to wear an AP. I want to, I want to be ensconced in it at, at like a building that's AP branded, you know, other, other luxury companies do this. I mean, Bulgari does it too, you know, with the Bulgari hotels, et cetera, but AP really went for it. So when you, so when you look at like a Panerai or you look at an AP, which are different in many ways, but are similar because of their connection to a time and a place and a moment of, you know, extreme love for that design or that aesthetic or that particular, you know, association. The question then becomes, okay, so what, what am I going to look like in 20 years? And I think if you go, if we go, keep going back to the examples we have, if you ask Rolex, if you ask Paddock, or if you ask Max Booser what he wants or what they want the brand to look like in 20 years, they can answer that instantaneously with both a brand and product
0: question and answer. Well, and I would imagine the answer is remarkably consistent over time. Exactly. And I think the, what I find, what I find slightly stressful
1: from as a, as a brand, as somebody who likes branding in general, and I look at something like AP is I'm like, if you, if if product substance starts to come back, right? If you're making more guilloche effect watches than guilloche dials, and people are buying those because of the relevancy of the brand today, What will make that brand relevant in the future? And then an even bigger question is, maybe they don't aspire to actually be a watchmaking brand. Maybe what they really aspire to be is a cultural brand, and they want to make other types of products as well. And the watchmaking becomes less and less important because they've invested so heavily, and we get closer and closer and closer to making an analogy between them and Supreme than we do between them and Patek Philippe. I don't know. You can, you you know, it depends how far their business strategy is taking them. They did bring a CPG executive
0: in to run the company.
1: And, you know, well, I,
0: yeah, that's a clear sign. They understand the value of a, of a brand.
1: Well, yes. And it may also be a clear sign that suggests that maybe what they're really building is a brand and not a watchmaking company.
0: Well, I think so. What's what's interesting about this is, you know, another kind of provoking, thought provoking definition I heard of a brand when I worked in in advertising and did nothing but have conversations like this all day dear boy usually drunk <laughs> no comment <laughs> the other definition was you know what a, a brand is a set of behaviors and what i mean by that is oftentimes i think when we think about brand we equate brand and marketing like oh a brand is like you know you buy advertising or you have a sponsorship or you have a boutique or whatever And those are all things you can do to make your brand, but really a brand is a set of behaviors. It's how you behave as a company and what all these examples, whether it's AP and what you just described, Grand Seiko, Moser, whatever. I think what we're, we're, we're seeing here is like, it really is a set of behaviors. In other Mm -hmm. words, There is no formula for how you go about building a brand. And in fact, the choices and the levers you can pull when you're running a company in terms of how you build your brand are innumerable. So there are just as many ways to get things wrong as right. So part of the way you invest in your brand could be I'm going to really commit to quality control and I'm going to build a reputation for having very well made products. Mm -hmm. Or I'm going to invest in marketing that's really kind of irreverent, and thought-provoking. And that's how I'm going to build my reputation. Or I can focus on, let's take AP, building out these eight, these houses where I welcome customers in and I create an experience for them. And that's how I build my brand. So I think what what's kind of eye-opening here is like, there's no formula for this. In fact, there's almost like so many choices you have when you think about what your brand is and how you manage it. It's a bit overwhelming. So when we flip this around
1: from the consumer perspective, I find this interesting because it begs the question, well, how should brand really figure into my purchase decisions? And that, <laughs> like, that's kind of the million-dollar question, right? Because If if we keep rolling with AP, their bet is that the stronger the stronger their brand, the clearer their communication, the more ways for you to physically inhabit it or possess it, the the stronger it will be, And, and the desire to be part of that drives it. And then we also know that there are clients and there are people out there who find that to be utterly distasteful, and they don't want any of that. What they want is for the brand to represent you know, the mechanical excellence of the manufacturer. But all of this still boils down to one very clear point, which is if the brand can't articulate why it matters and why the watchmaking is there, none of this really clicks. And when we go back to this idea of like people who want to eschew a, you know, the use of a brand, I think the, the, the risk that they run is not being able to clearly articulate what they stand for and their value and then it's up to the consumer to decide whether what's being communicated actually transmits any value and is worth the premium right because with patek philippe if we keep going back to that there's the intrinsic value so to speak of the of the watch there's the experience of buying it there's being welcomed into the factory with the free i'm sorry the museum with the free ticket everyone gets when they buy a patek that makes them feel welcomed, but in a very sort of like old school, you know, classic way.
0: Well, there's also the experience of wearing a Patek Philippe. And when you go to a cocktail party or whatever, everyone knows what's on your wrist and probably how much you spent on it. And for some people that's distasteful and they don't care. They're utterly uninterested. But for a lot of people, that's part of the value of buying into a fully
1: well it's very useful for me because i know who will pass me the
0: great poupon <laughs> fair 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 <laughs> enough i'm not saying like that's the right thing to to want or a bad thing to want but that is part of the experience and the value and i think you're right it, it really does come down to whether a brand matters or frankly what kind of brand matters because look there are all sorts of ways to be a brand right it's not just you know how to build a watch brand for dummies and like rinse and repeat what paddock does. There are any number of ways to be a brand and to stand for something and to have a reputation and people get to decide what they want. I know that when we buy watches as a retailer brand does, does matter. So, you know, look for, for some watchmakers we, we carry like there is a significant risk to bringing them into our store. You know, there's a minimum order. The, the watches aren't cheap. And part of the question we have to ask ourselves is, of course, we're bringing them in because we believe in them. You know, fundamentally, every watch that's in our safe is from a watchmaker who we believe in. We we vote with our wallet in, the, in that way. But part of the question we have to the watchmakers we carry is, what are you doing to invest in your brand? It's not enough for these watches to sit in our safes. And of course, we do plenty of work ourselves to market the brands, share them with people, raise awareness of it. But I think there's an expectation that we have from the manufacturers that they're equally invested into building their reputation and having people know about their products.
1: So I'm going to stick a pin in this whole conversation by bringing it back around to the very first question that you asked, which is, you know, how do I, how should I feel? Or like just a conversation topic, like how do I feel about the fact that Patek can charge $300,000 for something that someone else can't get away with charging 50% of or a third of? If I was their retailer, I'd feel pretty great about it. Well, sure, but I would say (laughs) that- Right or wrong. Yeah, but I would say the reason why they can do that and why people will pay it and why it's fundamentally true is because they survived. It's because they were so methodical and so thoughtful and so clear in their brand vision and how that came to life through their product that over a century plus, century plus, they've managed to build equity in what they've done and therefore they're being compensated for it. And I think that's part of it. That's part of it. Part of the reason why they can command what they're commanding is because they're still here, and that means a lot to people when they're buying something at that price point. And I think brands that have that take the roller coaster route, they're 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 kind of gambling a well, not kind of, they're literally gambling with the long term value of their brand because it has to mean the same in terms of whatever the message is to my, to me as an adult right now, as it will mean to me as a grandfather, you know, 30 years from now and therefore to my grandchildren, et cetera. So that's why they can do it. Whether you want to pay it, that's a whole other conversation, but that's why they can get
0: away with it. All right. Well, that's as good a place as any to end it. Should we leave it there? Let's do it. All right. Well, thank you for listening to Open Work. It's a production of Collective Horology. You can find us at collectivehorology.com, where you can check out our inventory and sign up for first access to future collaborations, special releases, and events. To get in touch with feedback, questions, or suggestions, just email podcast at collectivehorology.com.